Thursday, August 9th. Welcome to Market Forward. I'm Chris Helm. Joining me in studio today for Million Dollar Portfolio, Charlie Travers, and for Motley Fool's Special Ops, Mike Olson. Gentlemen, happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. It's we're, almost Friday. I know. We're almost there. We're going to wrap up the week with a round of undervalued, overvalued, overlooked. This is where the guys come to the table with a couple of stops. It's a couple of stocks they think are undervalued, overvalued, and, and overlooked. You know, in the past, we've done overlooked as sort of like a media story, but Let's face it, there are a lot of stocks out there that are just obscured by the attention that Facebook and on Apple and all these others get. So we're going to drill down on a couple of those. Let's start with the undervalued stocks. Charlie, what do you got on your radar? I uh, got Burger King for you, Chris. Uh, this is one of the IPOs of this year. Everybody knows the brand. And at 30 times earnings, it does not look obviously undervalued, but there's a lot going on here uh, when you get beyond the numbers. Uh, first off, uh, this is a company that has 12,000 stores worldwide. If you look at competitors like McDonald's or Yum! Brands, they both are over 30,000. Uh, so Burger King has a really long growth runway ahead of it. And what they are doing is licensing their brand globally. They already have partnerships in place with uh, companies in Brazil, China, and Russia, where the local operators who know the market will put up their own capital and put down Burger King restaurants. Uh, And through that, they're going to get this uh, store count up to 17,000 by the year 2016. Uh, So this is a way for Burger King to grow without putting up any of its own money, and they'll get 4 to 5% of sales off the top. And the ticker symbol? BKW. Um, you know, I, I don't own shares of any of the companies you just listed, but I think for anyone listening who, who thinks about Burger King, it's natural to just automatically think, well, but McDonald's is so big and yep. so dominant. And we talk all the time about investing in the leaders. Um, is part of the thesis here with Burger King that they just have a lot more room to run if they get it right? Uh, That's a big part of it. The other part of it is that domestically they lag McDonald's and Wendy's, and they're going to take a page out of their playbook and remodel a lot of their stores to drive same-store sales growth because that worked so well for McDonald's over the last decade. How much of the thesis here has to do with the fact that they got rid of the creepy Burger King mascot? It shows good decision-making. Mike Olson, what do you got for uh, undervalued stocks? Chicken. Uh, The idea here is that basically chicken producers, historically, it's a very cyclical business. What we've seen over passage of time is the major chicken producers, they will produce too much chicken, prices will plummet, they will curtail capacity, prices will in turn improve, as will their profitability. And we saw that happen across maybe the past two or three years. And on account of the fact that there's been dramatic consolidation, the top four producers in the chicken business, that's Sanderson Farms, Pilgrim's Pride, Tyson, and Purdue, occupy maybe 75 to 80% of capacity right wow. now. So it's pretty rational. They went ahead and brought in their capacity, their production. Prices improved. Right now, we're looking at good pricing and a pretty rational production mix. However... You may have heard something about this drought that's happening right now. Yeah, and the price of corn going up about 50% in the last couple of months. Exactly. And corn and soybean meal are key inputs in the the sort of cost structure to these companies. They're expecting that they're going to get absolutely killed on profitability this year. And the idea around a cyclical company like this is you want to buy just as they are not producing profits, because that is where you're at that inflection point where there's going to be some improvement. We could be looking at a circumstance where you you kind of have this confluence of factors where they have excellent profits, and that is corn prices move lower next year, and they have 
good pricing. And so it, it looks very interesting right now. So part of the thesis is we're just looking for things to get a little bit better, but also it sounds like there's a fair amount of patience, and, and maybe fair amount is overstating it, but it sounds like you're looking six, 12 months out at least for this kind of thing to pay off. Absolutely. This is not the type of thing where we are going to see an immediate improvement, and the timing surrounding that improvement is, is you know, it's highly uncertain. It could happen three months from now if, you know, there's a little bit more rain than people expect. It could be something that is, you know, a 12, 18, or perhaps even 24-month thesis. Charlie, when I see stories about the price of corn going up, I think selfishly about bourbon. And, and, and I'm wondering, you know, in terms of input costs, are we also possibly going to see some sort of ripple effect for companies like Beam, uh, maybe even Diageo, any companies that are dealing with bourbon production? I realize that particularly for a company like Diageo, that's just one small part of their business. But you know, uh, is that is that a cause for concern for those companies? Not with the spirits producers, I wouldn't think, just because the production time is uh, so long. And as a you know fellow bourbon drinker who appreciates a good beverage, uh, it just takes many years for the bourbon to mature. Right. I mean, I think one thing you might be thinking about as another bourbon drinker is that if if viewed across a very long term horizon, here we are actually. I mean, we're in a bourbon. I, I guess renaissance? Uh, yeah. Bourbon renaissance, and there, there's a profound shortage just because the lead times are so long. And so you would very much expect that any rational or smart bourbon producer would go ahead and pass these costs on. And that's exactly what the chicken producers expect to do as well. Let's move on to the overvalued stocks. Charlie, I know you only have to pick one, but uh, what do you got? I, I was going to pick Amazon, Chris, because I thought <laughs> you know our fellow advisor, Joe Mager, would be on the show, and just to rile him up a bit. He's <laughs> just, easily rileable. <laughs> just, just on the off chance that he just jumps up and takes a swing at you for yeah, calling that's his right. beloved Amazon overvalued? But I'm going to save that one for later. Okay. Today, uh, we'll talk about Altria. Uh, you know, ticker's M.O., uh, a year ago, I was actually bullish on all of the tobacco stocks. However, they've done quite well, and they've all beaten the S&P, and Altria is the strongest performer. And with a 4.7% dividend yield right now, it might be tempting, but don't be fooled. Uh, this is a business in long-term decline. Uh, fewer people are smoking, which is a good thing, and the people who are smoking are smoking fewer cigarettes per day just because of the cost. And so that leads to Marlboro year in and year out losing about 2 3 4% on its carton volumes. And yet Altria's stock is priced for 10% growth every year for the next 10 years. Uh, that that just does not add up with what's going on. In Bear in mind, those people are also dying. Right. <laughs> so I have to play devil's advocate, and I'm thinking of our colleague James Early, who loves dividends. And I think for James, and probably for a lot of people, the dividend alone, the the history of Altria in terms of paying out that dividend, that's enough to get investors interested. It, it is, Chris, uh, but the dividend here is not sustainable. They pay out every penny they make as the dividend, and as their cash flow inevitably falls, the dividend's going to go right along with it. All right, Mike, what do you got that's overvalued? I have AMC Networks. Uh, now, this is not really a household name. It was recently spun off from Cablevision, and so as kind of a, a value digger, that is a, a characteristic which often attracts me. They have some excellent franchises. They're the producer of Mad Men, Breaking Bad, The Killing, Walking Dead. And that's, in fact, exactly the reason why I'm calling it overvalued. Right now, this is a stock which superficially does not appear overpriced. It sells at maybe 10 times cash flow. 
But what you have to consider here is they have had several years of incredible success. And so they have many of their affiliate fees. That's the rates they negotiate for their content with the cable networks. They're coming up for renegotiation in over the course of the next year, two, three years. And what you have to assume in order that they can justify this level of cash flow is that they will be able to replicate the sort of programming success they've seen with Breaking Bad, with Mad Men, with The Walking Dead, The Killing. And the reality is, these are incredible shows. They are incredible shows, but I believe The Killing was recently canceled, or they said they weren't going to produce another season. And Mad Men, I think, is, if not going into its final season, it's it's probably... Got to be close. It's got to be close to wrapping up in the next couple of years. I mean, Don Draper's liver can't handle anymore, Chris. <laughs> well, and, and the smoking, for right. that matter. Uh, and, and it's the same thing with Breaking Bad. I mean... The reality is those two main characters, they're going to self-destruct at some point or another. And so when it comes to being able to continue to charge those rates, just can't see it happening. That sort of success is not sustainable across the long term. So it sounds like when you look at the valuation, to your point about, you know, it, it on the surface does not appear to be an overvalued stock. It sounds like this is less about the valuation and more about the pipeline. And right how essentially they will need to knock out four more blockbuster hits. It, this is the Yankees winning the World Series for 10 years running. Let's move on to the overlooked stocks. Charlie, what do you got? I'm going to bring a UK stock to our listeners. The company is called Burberry Group. Uh, trades on the pink sheets here in the States under the ticker B-U-R-B-Y. Uh, and this is an iconic British fashion brand. Uh, they only have 444 stores worldwide. Their goal is to take that up to 1,000. And like a lot of other high fashion companies uh, like Coach, uh, they are doing very well in Asia, particularly China. And, you know, that enough isn't enough to get me excited uh, because fashion is very fickle. Uh, but what gets me comfortable with Burberry Group is that management is very shrewd. Uh, CEO Angela Arendt joined in 2006, made a lot of operational improvements to increase their margins, such as shipping the clothes around the world on boat instead of in airplanes, uh, consolidating their vendors and the like. And they always stress investing in the brand. And when they put down new stores, earning a high return on capital, they have a 25% hurdle rate on all new investments. Uh, they're very focused on making the money they spend pay off, which is why they're so heavy into their Asia spending right now, which is where most of their profits come from. Uh, so this is a great brand at a great price right now. Luxury stocks, and we talked about this recently, they've kind of been hit or miss recently. I mean, you mentioned Coach. We've seen mixed results from you know Coach, Tiffany, and and the like. What do you think makes the difference? Because obviously, economics, macroeconomics helps to dictate some of that. Right. But is it, I mean, to your point about Burberry's management, is that one of the things that, that uh, gets a company, a luxury company, up over the hurdle? They really have to hit the blocking and tackling across the board. That's everything from training employees on how to sell effectively in the store to managing their inventory and making sure they don't have fashion missteps. I like that we work both a football analogy or, and a uh, track and field analogy into that one as well. Thank you. Uh, Mike, what do you got for overlooked? Uh, I have a – this is sort of a secular theme, which is basically amid all the macroeconomic uncertainty, it's deep water drillers. And, you know, you've seen a lot of weakness across many sectors which are economically uh, sensitive. 
And the belief would be that deep water drillers also fall into that camp. I mean, in order for some deep water wells to be economically viable, you need $80 oil. The reality is that because there are very long lead times on these projects, companies have continued to invest in them, and there's a profound shortage of deep water rigs. And so what you're seeing here is you're seeing some nice fixtures. They, they lease these things at one- or two-year contracts on a day rate basis. And recent day rates are among the best we've seen in a very long time. There are two operators specifically, which I'll, which I'll single out as uh, positioned to take advantage of this. One is Ensco. They're kind of a best-in-class operator, very returns-focused and very shareholder-friendly. They recently did a merger with Pride, which I think there's upside from. The other is Transocean. Now, both of these companies are going to benefit from the roll-off of previous day rates and renewal at higher rates and the shortage of rigs within the market. This is a big, long-term secular cycle. It's hard to find oil, and right now that's one of the few sources of new oil. Is that part of the thesis here, that there just aren't that many choices when it comes to deep water drilling, and therefore, to the extent that anyone's going to benefit, it's going to be companies like these? Right. Well, it's a relatively consolidated industry sphere. Um, there are just not many companies that can afford the investment. It costs maybe five to $700 million to build a new deep water rig. And so, you need to have a certain threshold uh, size in terms of your balance sheet. And the other is basically where you're finding that marginal barrel of oil. I mean, there are two places. It's the shells, and it's deep water. And the ticker symbols for those two companies? ESV and RIG. Disclosure, I own both of them. Uh, that's, a, that's a good ticker, RIG. Uh, I should mention, uh, you, you were talking about AMC Networks uh, before the ticker there, AMCX. Uh, we got an email uh, from Karthik Ravashankar, who is at the Marshall School of Business at USC. He writes, I heard that Amazon was getting into social gaming, which got me thinking, is CEO Jeff Bezos basically like Robin Williams from Dead Poets Society with this sort of carpe diem attitude when it comes to new ventures? If you had to name three things you'd be slightly surprised by, but not altogether astonished by, that Amazon could do in the next year, what would they be? I like the question because it, it, we have seen this before, Charlie. We have seen companies across a range of industries announce new ventures that are not right in their wheelhouse. And yes, I am thinking specifically of Starbucks years ago announcing they were going to produce movies with Aquila and the Bee. And as a shareholder, I just sort of turned my head to the side and was like, really? <laughs> really? We're going to make money off of that? Um, what do you think, though? What's, what's something that Amazon could do that would be a little bit of a surprise, but not insane? So they've started doing this already, Chris, and I think they get after it in a bigger way, which would be uh, creating their own original content for the Amazon Instant Video. Uh, they've signed a lot of studio partnerships in the last year, and uh, over the summer, they've really opened it up for anybody to submit scripts and descriptions uh, in the comedy and children's genres. Uh, they look through all of these proposals and decide which ones they want to greenlight, uh, so it allows them to have unique content that distinguishes them from Netflix and Hulu Plus in a very low-cost manner. And I think they go after this in a bigger way because at the end of the day, Jeff Bezos just wants any reason to sell Prime subscriptions <laughs> that he can. Mike, what do you think? My idea kind of hues to that, which is basically that Amazon has made a big play on Apple, iTunes, and the like in distributing MP3s. Now, what I think they should or might consider doing is basically being their own indie record label. Now, they have some, they have some unique advantages in the distribution, their ability to 
push content out and the sort of cash that they produce. So what you do is you go to small musicians or perhaps even larger musicians and you say, look, you know what? We'll give you a small amount of money to produce a record. We'll give you distribution. We'll give you advertising. And, you know, you can put it out here on our platform. And the interesting part for them from a corollary standpoint is, A, they get more information regarding how people consume content, and B, they're able to flex on the record companies even more, which they've probably already been doing. I'm going to go with internet banking because I think that it's something that, again, I would be a little surprised, but it's not all that much more surprising than the fact that you know Costco has their own travel service and right. healthcare services and that sort of thing. So it's much more, again, it's much more of a natural fit than Starbucks producing movies. That's maybe, maybe that's a low bar to clear, but uh, <laughs> so be it. Charlie Travers, Mike Olson, guys, thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday.